Hey, happy warm January to you. Isn't this wonderful? <laughs> wow, we, uh, we can't seem to get too excited about the weather. For those of you who are joining us uh, online, and for those of you joining the, us in the chapel, uh, everybody here in the worship center, so glad to be with you today. Uh, welcome to Pleasant Valley. Our time of worship and celebration together is so meaningful to, to me. I was thinking while uh, we were singing the songs how much I actually needed. I needed the songs and I need to be able to, uh, to be with you guys and to worship. And I hope you feel the same way. If you're with us for the first time, thank you for joining us. Here in the house, if we can help you uh, in the chapel or in the worship center, we'll have friends that'll either be down front or here in the worship center, they'll be in the back at some tables. If you have questions about Pleasant Valley, you want to figure out how to get better plugged in, maybe you have questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus, or you're ready to take that step of faith, we're here to help you on the journey. If you're joining us online, if you'll just go to pleasantvalley.org slash connect, fill out the communication card, um, chat with us online, our host would be glad to encourage you in any way that we can. Uh, we have a bit of celebrating going on in the life of our church. One of our staff members yesterday, Caleb Eisler, married the girl of his dreams, Carly Ross, and so we celebrate their wedding. It's a beautiful thing. Always a good thing to uh, always a good thing to celebrate those kind of things. Speaking of weddings, Karen and I were gone this past week, and we were uh, celebrating in a warmer place. I've been people have been joking to me about my tan. I was in the basement with a little sun lamp the entire week while it was cold. We were in a warmer place celebrating 42 years of marriage, and uh, God blessed me with uh, with a wonderful, wonderful soulmate. And um, anyway, all of that to be said, let me start off with a question, random question. How do you go about reading books? Don't answer out loud, just think for a minute. How do you go about reading a book? So you buy a book and what is your process? Do you begin at the very beginning and you start with like all of the acknowledgements and then the preface and you read everything that everybody said about the book and then you just slowly pound your way through the book until you get to the end and maybe you actually look at the footnote and uh, you look at the back cover. I don't know if you do that. That's kind of how I go about reading a book. But I've got a friend who reads books differently. He buys the book, looks at the cover, looks at the back. He reads the first chapter. He reads the end of the book, the last chapter. And he can basically tell you what the book is about. How many of you do that? There is anybody, a few folks do that. And so that's just, that's economy of words, right? You can figure it out what the book is all about. Well, if you were to do the same thing with the Bible, and you were just to take and read the first two chapters of Genesis, and then if you were to go to the very end and read the last two chapters of Revelation, this is what you would discover. God has always been about us experiencing a flourishing life. God is a God who wants us to flourish. So you go to Genesis, and what do you find in Genesis? In the very beginning, where does God put Adam and Eve? Does he put them in a desert? Does he put them in a frozen tundra like Kansas City? No, where does he put them? He puts them in a, puts them in a garden. 
It's a lush place, and we can only imagine what it was like. My dad loved gardening. My dad had a green thumb. He could make everything just grow and flourish, beautiful flowers, beautiful vegetables. You go to the end of the book of Revelation after humanity has gone through all that sin has brought about. We go through all of this persecution, all of this difficulty, all of this devastation, and then at the very end, God says that he is going to establish a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And if you read those last two chapters, it is as if God is describing something that is far beyond the original Eden. It is so filled with flourishing, glorious metaphors. We're launching a brand new series today called The Flourishing Life. And whenever I read the bookends of the Bible and I see how much God wants us to flourish, I'm not surprised then when people ask a question like this, how can I have a more genuinely flourishing life than I currently have? Because that question is really built into our human experience. We were created by a God who wants us to flourish. And when we are not flourishing, when we're not experiencing abundance, when we're not thriving, when we're simply floundering and we're simply surviving and struggling, it's because God made us for something different, so so much more. So let me ask you to ponder this question. Do the yearnings that you have toward flourishing in your own life mean that there is something, something beyond? Is it for you a strong indicator that you are missing out on all that God intended our lives to be? So we're going to talk about a a flourishing life. And we had a graphic designer come up with this beautiful, beautiful image. Take a look at that image while I move the TV back a little bit. So we're going to flourish together. And what I want you to do is I want you just to kind of bookmark this particular sermon as the beginning of a multi-month series. We're going to be thinking about a flourishing life for multiple months, and this is simply an introduction to help us launch into what it is that we're going to be learning over a period of months. And so let's start off with what I'm going to give is my definition of flourishing. So here's what flourishing means as far as the content of our church and the content of this series. It is a state of being so filled with God that you are fruitful and therefore fulfilled. Some definitions say it, it means that you just, you're, you're thriving. Some people talk about flourishing like dramatic movements or something like that. For our purposes, it is being so filled with God that you are fruitful and you are fulfilled. Is that anything that you think you would want in your life? To be so filled with God that you look at your life, whatever stage of life you're at, and you go, I see fruit coming from my life. And when you look at the fruit, you go, that brings fulfillment to me. 
I mean, I, don't, I, I want this, and I want this in an ever-increasing fashion. The idea of flourishing is not only on the bookends of the Bible, but there's one particular psalm in particular that carries this idea of flourishing more than any other like single passage of Scripture, Psalm 92. And before we look at the, uh, this one particular text, let me set it up for you. More direct references to flourishing than in any other chapter in the Bible. When you look at the psalm, there's a contrast between individuals who are righteous, people that are filled with God, and individuals who are not righteous. The Bible calls them wicked. That just simply means they, they have no room for God in their life. The psalmist says, whenever you look at God's goodness and God's provision and God's righteousness, you see how he causes your life to flourish. And what do you do as a result? You simply want to praise God. You want to give him honor. You want to give him the totality of your life. <laughs> It's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to sing praises to his name. You learn in the same psalm that those who reject God, who have no space for God in their lives, for a period of time, it looks like they are flourishing. It looks like they are thriving. But it is always short-lived because they are not plugged into the true source of flourishing. And in the end, their rejection of God leads to their own condemnation. But at the very end of the psalm, the psalmist, and this was a psalm for the Sabbath, he talks about what it looks like when you flourish. Psalm 92, verses 12 through 14. The righteous, those who are totally committed to God, those who are right with God and doing right by others, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. So let's dig around in here for just a minute. The idea of righteous people flourishing is tied to the presence of God. In the presence of God, we flourish, we thrive. He says that we're like trees that are in the house of the Lord, like in the courts of our God. In the very presence of God is where flourishing is found. Those who are his, those who follow fully after God, those who do his will, will be fruitful in their life up to the very end of their life. Now, this is what I've discovered as I've added one more year to my life. I am not as strong as I used to be whenever I was, whenever I was younger. When I talk about the good old days I, and how athletic I was, I probably was never that athletic and I was never that strong, never that tall, never that good looking, never that smart. But, you know, you look back and you go, you're... It, one thing that I have noticed is when you add years to your life, your strength diminishes. Can I get a testimony in the house? And that's not like putting us down as we add years to our lives. It's just a simple physiological truth. As we age, we eventually diminish in our strength. But this psalmist says this, 
Just because you add years to your life doesn't diminish the capacity you have to flourish. And I love that. It says they will flourish. They will be fruitful even in their old age. Some of you have decided to park the car of your influence because you got to a certain age. And I want to say, get in your car, back it out of the parking lot, and begin to move in the direction of whatever God has in front of you in the days ahead. He intends for us to be fruitful and flourish all the days of our life. Our years will not diminish that as long as we are His. Amen? As long as we are His. And He compares righteous people, those folks who are filled with God, He compares righteous people to a couple of trees. He says they were like the cedars of Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon were prolific in in the world of the psalmist over in the Holy Land. They're prolific. They're known for being strong and sturdy and towering. And, and they have a beautiful fragrance. And he said, and we are like not only cedar trees of Lebanon, but we are like palm trees. These would be date palm trees. Let me talk with you a little bit about trees. And, and this may sound like, you know, I'm an arborist or something like that, but, but I'm not. But I think this is really important for you and I to hear as we think about what does it mean to flourish. He is using the image of something that people in his day would go, oh, that's a beautiful picture of flourishing. That's a beautiful picture of fruitfulness. A date palm tree, very common in Israel. It would grow up straight. Its upright nature was majestic. Its simplicity was was captivating. And the older the tree becomes, the sweeter and more abundant the fruit it produces. Let me just take a time out. This is coming to me right now. I want to be a sweeter old man, not a crabbier old man. I want to be someone that draws people to Jesus because there is a sweetness about my life rather than repelling people from Jesus because it looks like I soak every day in lemon juice or something like that. don't want to be sour. I want to be like the, the dates that grow sweeter over time. These trees can grow up to 30 feet tall. They have really massive uh, uh, frond leaves that can span four to six feet and dates are harvested in the heat of the summertime and the date palm is extremely economical because every part of the tree has its own use. Now think about this. If we're being compared to a palm tree and every part of a palm tree is useful, then every part of our life is to be useful and to be productive and to be fruitful for God. So the leaves, the leaves of the palm trees can be used to make ropes, baskets, or other woven goods like crates. The wood can be used for household interiors, furniture, exterior areas. The leaf bases and the fruit stalks can be used for fuel. The fruit can be used for date vinegar, date chutney, sweet pickle, date paste, 
and for flavoring, just as every part of a Judean palm tree has a purpose, so too nothing in your life and mine is ever to be wasted by God. You have never gone through anything that God can't and God will not use to produce something that is good. Now, not everything you and I go through is good, but God has the power, God has the wisdom, God has the will to take everything that happens in our lives, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, and use it to conform us to the, into the image of his son. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, said this. He says, even my being put in prison has purpose. He said this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There is nothing in your life that is wasted by God. God will use everything to cause you and I to flourish, to be in a state of being so filled with him that we are fruitful and that we are fulfilled. We flourish when we trust God and we see that God is going to use what happens in our life to advance the gospel, not only in us, but to other people. My desire, my desire moving into 2022 is to leave no space of my life not filled with God. When I think about my finances, and I think about my health, and I think about my marriage, and I think about my vocation, and I think about my friendships, and I think about my influence. I want every area of my life, the thoughts that I have, the words that I speak, the feelings that I emote, I want them to all be filled with God so that I'm fruitful. And in being fruitful, I will experience my life being fulfilled. So here's a question. Are you flourishing? Are there areas of your life that you have set aside and go, not that area? Either you don't want to invite God into it, or you don't think God wants to have anything to do with that area of your life. Do you want God to do something with your past disappointments? Do you want God to do something with the grief that you have experienced? Do you want God to do something with your failures? Do you want to invite God into that so that you will flourish? Are you flourishing in this life? Are you seeing fruit grow from your life? Are you experiencing any degree of fulfillment? We've said the bookends of the Bible speak to a life of flourishing. Psalm 92, God tells us he wants us to flourish all the days of our life. And not only that, I'm building a case. Let me just remind you what we're doing. I'm building a case. This is an introductory sermon to where we're going to be going for multiple months. Jesus intends for our lives to flourish. The intention of Jesus is that we would live flourishing 
flourishing lives, to be so filled with God that we are fruitful and therefore fulfilled. Let me just take you to one particular passage, John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, we find Jesus in an intense period of conflict with the religious leaders of his day. They analyzed every word. There was opposition everywhere he went. And he compares himself in contrast to the religious leaders of his day by saying, I'm a good shepherd. And a good shepherd is an individual who knows everything there is to know about his sheep and he cares for them and he knows their name and he calls them by name and they know his voice and he is always protective of them. He's not like a hireling like the religious leaders of Jesus' day were, who were really only doing what they did for themselves. They didn't really care about the people. And in that context, Jesus talking to, him, talking to them about who he is and being a good shepherd, he says this, a thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Or you could say, Jesus is saying, I have come that you might flourish and flourish beyond your wildest dreams. Jesus could have used one of two words here. He could have used the word bios. I have come that you might have physical life, that you might live biologically, but that's not what he said. I've come that you might have zoe, that you might have the life of God, that you might have fullness of life, that you might have life as is meant to be. Jesus says, I want you to flourish. I want you to experience real and eternal life. I don't want you to flounder. I don't want you just to, to settle for surviving and thriving and just making it through another day. I want you to flourish in everything that God has intended for your life to be about. Bookends of the Bible speak to the flourishing life. Psalm 92 speaks to the flourishing life. Jesus intends for our life to be a flourishing life. Next point, Jesus lived a flourishing life, and he brought flourishing wherever he went. Jesus lived a flourishing life. Jesus is the embodiment of a person so filled with God that everything about his life was fruitful. No wasted moments, no wasted experiences, no wasted encounters, no wasted time whatsoever. And because he was fruitful, he experienced ultimate fulfillment. He said that his food, his life nourishment was to do the will of the one who sent him. And in his what we call the high priestly prayer in John 17, he is praying to the Father and says, I have completed everything that you have intended that I do. Who can say that? Jesus did. So filled with God that he was fruitful and he was fulfilled. So if Jesus is the perfect embodiment of a flourishing life, then it can't be said to flourish means only that you are prosperous materially. Because that's not what Jesus is promising, because if Jesus is the embodiment 
of flourishing, Jesus was not affluent. Jesus was not rich in the things of the world. If Jesus is the perfect embodiment of a flourishing life, then it can't be. Flourishing life can't be about having everyone like you because Jesus didn't. Some folks live or die on a Facebook like. Jesus didn't get this all of the time. That's not what it means to flourish, to be popular and have everybody like you. It can't mean, a flourishing life can't mean that you never suffer. Because Jesus did suffer intensely. A flourishing life can't mean that you just live a long life. Jesus was likely put to death when he was 33 years of age. A flourishing life can't be about looking within yourself and finding your passion. Because Jesus didn't look within himself to find his passion. He looked up to find the Father's purpose, and he looked out to see the need of humanity, and that's what he did. He fulfilled that. Let me just say this as an aside. Most people I know that truly flourish in life don't look inside and then plan their lives. They look to God. They look outside themselves. They find God's call. They find a human need which summons their life, and they give themselves fully to it. Listen to how Peter summed up the life of Jesus. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. This is a summary of Jesus' life, part of a, a sermon that Peter was preaching. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing those who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Jesus, so filled with God that he became fruitful. What was his fruitfulness? He went about doing good. He went about bringing healing to people who were oppressed in life. And he did all of that because he was so filled with God. Matthew was one of Jesus' closest followers. He's a part of the 12. And so Matthew followed Jesus around. Matthew heard Jesus teach. Matthew's life was transformed by Jesus, radically transformed by Jesus. And so Matthew writes a gospel about Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew is saying something very similar to what Peter says about a summary of Jesus' life, but he adds one additional element that has everything to do with the flourishing life. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. This was after Jesus had been baptized by John after he had spent 40 days in the desert being tempted, and he's begun his ministry. It says, now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Jesus 
flourished because he was so filled with God that he lived for God and he lived to do good for others. So just pause for a minute and ask yourself the question, is that true about me? Is that true about me? Am I looking to God to find my purpose? Am I looking around me to see what the calling might be? It's been said that the will of God is when a great need in the world intersects with a great joy that God puts inside of you. Jesus was experiencing that. He was going about doing good, but, but the one thing that Matthew points out that is different from what Peter pointed out that summarizes how Jesus flourished. It says, Jesus went about announcing, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He went about proclaiming, announcing the good news of the kingdom. So whatever flourishing is, it is connected to the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. And, and a kingdom implies that there is a king, that there's somebody in authority. And a kingdom implies that there is a sphere over which the one in authority rules. The Bible says that the day is coming when Jesus will be recognized by everybody as the king of kings. Every knee will bow to him. That day has not come yet. The kingdom is here, but it has not come in its fullness yet. Jesus came to announce, let me tell you, there's some good news. The king is here, and the sphere that he wants to, the sphere that he wants to oversee and give direction to is the sphere of your human heart. And wherever the king is, that is where flourishing will take place. One way to describe the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done, what God wants done is being done. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done is being done. Now I'm building a case, and I hope that you're following. You're still with me. Still with me in the chapel, still with me online. I'm building a case for the flourishing life. The Bible bookends it. Psalm 92 talks about it. Jesus intends it for us. Jesus lived a flourishing life and went about causing everything around him, bringing flourishing to everywhere he went. And one of the things that he did is he did good. He helped people get set free from oppression, and he proclaimed, he announced that there is really good news. The kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom of God is the place where we flourish when we are in the kingdom. No better place to discover what God wants done and what a flourishing life looks like than to turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It's taken me all of this time to tell you that over the next multiple months, we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount, but I wanted you to know that the Sermon on the Mount is all about a flourishing life. To be so filled with God that you are fruitful and you are fulfilled. And what you and I will find in the Sermon on the Mount is the description and the prescription for how that can actually be experienced. 
We're going to ascend what I believe to be the Mount Everest of any message that's ever been declared by anybody. It is the Mount Everest of human ethics. No other ethical system comes close to what Jesus has declared in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, we get God's vision for a flourishing life, and we also get direction, intention about how to go about experiencing a flourishing life. The flourishing life is not an unrealizable ideal. Pastor, it's a good thing that you're talking about that. We're never going to get there. We're never going to experience it. You just keep preaching yourself silly up there. No, it is real. It can be achieved in the power of Jesus. It can be achieved. What Jesus talks about can be put into practice. And as it is put into practice, we flourish. So let me go back one more time as I'm drawing this to a close. Jesus brought about flourishing wherever he went, in part by announcing the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done is being done. Therefore, to be in the kingdom is to be blessed. At the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lists nine blessings. Nine Beatitudes, as we call them. And he's basically saying that if you want to be blessed or if you want to flourish, you got to be in the kingdom. Congratulations to you if these things are true about you because the kingdom of heaven is yours. So let me tell you what the word blessed means. The word blessed is an invitation to a way of being in the world that promises human flourishing. It's an invitation into a way of being in the world that promises that you will flourish, that you will be so filled with God that you will be fruitful and you will be fulfilled. So let me read to you the Beatitudes that we will begin to look at in earnest next week. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, the disciples came to him. So let me just tip my hat. I'm going to talk with you toward the end about the difference between the crowds and the disciples because it's really prevalent in Matthew's gospel, and it's really prevalent in the Sermon on the Mount. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed or flourishing are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is incredibly countercultural. 
Jesus is saying people that are invited into a state of being where they flourish are not the people that you would think. You would think it'd be the affluent. You would think it would be the people who had the most power. You think it would be the people who had the greatest education. You think it would be the people who had the greatest opportunity for influence. But Jesus doesn't say those folks are experiencing an invitation into a way of being in the world that promises human flourishing. He's saying it's the poor in the spirit. It's the meek. It's those who have pure hearts. I really appreciate how one guy put it. He says this, who are the blessed? You know who's blessed. You're blessed. Not because you live a well-managed life and not because you have a lot of resources, not because you're well-off, well-fed, well-dressed, well-educated, but because you're in a messed up, goofed up, junked up, knee-deep, desperate, choking condition. Good news. Blessed are you. The kingdom is coming and You'll just, if you'll just receive it as a broken, needy person, then out of that broken, needy blessedness, then you become a blessing to other people. A life of flourishing for the people that you would never expect. You. Me. And the gospel of Matthew, he contrasts the crowds with the disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and the disciples came to him. You go to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus is done talking, Matthew says that the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teachings. But it doesn't mean that the crowds followed Jesus' teaching and therefore flourished. The crowds were the fans. The disciples are the followers. Fans are easily impressed. Followers are devoted. Fans talk about the kingdom of God being a great idea. Followers do what the king says, therefore they flourish. Admirers, fans may flourish for a while as long as everything's going their way. Followers flourish over the long haul, even when, and especially when, life isn't going the way they thought it would go. Let me see if I can give you a picture of the difference between the crowd and a disciple, a fan and a follower, an admirer and a devotee. About 150 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Charles Blondin, and he was at the peak of his profession as a tightrope walker. He was fascinated with Niagara Falls, and so he came from, uh, from Europe over to America, and his desire was to string a rope across Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet, 160 feet above the, the falls itself, and without a net, do a tightrope walk inch by inch, step by step across the Niagara Falls. Now imagine the drama for just a minute. I mean, it, it's, it's hard for me to balance on a step stool. 
And here is a guy who is going to foot by foot, inch by inch, walk across the Niagara Falls without a net and without any safety lines at all. 100,000 people showed up to watch him do this. They were taking pictures of him as he did it. He crossed over on the tightrope with a camera, and while on the tightrope, 160 feet above Niagara Falls, took a picture of the people taking a picture of him going across Niagara Falls. He went another time, and he took out a chair, and he balanced the chair on the rope, and then he stood on the chair. And he went back another time, and he fixed an omelet. And then he walked back out with the omelet, and he lowered the omelet down to the, what is it called? The maid of the mist that was in Niagara, in the Niagara Falls, and it lowered it down for somebody to have breakfast. He went over another time, and he took a wheelbarrow across, and the crowd went crazy. This guy was the ultimate showman. And so he said this, do you believe I can do this? with this wheelbarrow. And they said, we know you can do this. He says, well, now who will get in the wheelbarrow? And it got really quiet. <laughs> there was a guy by the name of Harry Colcord who knew Blondin. He worked with him. He'd seen him do this uh, tightrope walk a hundred times over the course of working with him. So he got in the wheelbarrow and they went inch by inch over Niagara Falls and they made it to the other side and the crowd lost their mind. But nobody would get in the wheelbarrow even after they saw Blondin take cold cord across the Niagara Falls in the wheelbarrow. It was an experience that people were totally impressed by from a distance. Harry Colcord was a devotee. He experienced it for himself because he got in the wheelbarrow. Jesus never invited anybody to come admire him. He invites people to follow. Admirers will not flourish in life. Admirers of Jesus will not experience being so filled with God that they are fruitful and therefore fulfilled. Followers will. And so, for me, here's the question Are you a fan or are you a follower? And maybe the question that Jesus is asking today is this. Are you willing to get in the wheelbarrow? The wheelbarrow of faith and experience a brand new life. Let's pray. God, thank you that your intent for us is that we not flounder in life, not just survive, not just make it through another week, but that you really want us to flourish. You want the experience of the garden before sin, the experience of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem to be ours right here and right now. 
You want us to know the life of God. You want us to experience the eternal life that begins the moment that we say yes to Jesus. You want us to be able to look at, the, at our life and go, it is fruitful. It is fulfilling. Because God has filled up every space of my life. There's nothing that I'm leaving out. God, we want to do what you want done. We don't want to use you for our own ends. We want to get in the wheelbarrow and totally devote our lives to you. Not as fans, not as admirers, not as the crowds, but as disciples, devotees, and followers. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, and we all said together, amen, amen. I am so glad that you came. Wow, that was such an incredible message today. We hope you are blessed by the message and our time spent in worship. We love that you joined us today, but the time goes by so quickly. Would you do us a favor and head over to pleasantvalley.org connect and fill out that form? That'll let us know how we can serve you. We are so glad you joined us today and we hope you join us next week.